And this morning, it's kind of a long text, but I want you to understand that what I'm going to read now is God's word. What I'm going to say afterward is my word. I hope it's lining up with God's word, but this is the inspired word of God. And so I think it's important that we read it, even though it's a long chapter, and I'm not assuming that all of you have been meditating on it all week long, uh, as I have. And so it's important for you to understand where the message is coming from. So I'm going to read Numbers chapter 16, and the words will be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible or uh, an electronic device to follow along with. The word of God. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to himself. Even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers. Censers are little fire pans that held incense burning. Take censers for yourselves, Korah, and all your company, and put fire in them, and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You've gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near him to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he's brought you near Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? Are you, all, are you seeking for the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come up. Is it not enough that you've brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness? But would you also lord it over us? Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Don't regard their offering. I've not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. Moses said to Korah, You and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they, along with Aaron. Each of you take his fire pan and put incense on it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 fire pans. Also, you and Aaron shall each bring his fire pan. 
So they each took his own censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it, and they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces and said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, <clears throat> Depart now from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing that belongs to them, or you'll be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents, along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who are around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, that he shall take up the censers out of the midst of the blaze, for they are holy, and you scatter the burning coals abroad. As for the censers of these men, who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered sheets for a plating of the altar, since they did present them before the Lord, and they're holy, and they shall be for a sign to the sons of Israel. <clears throat> so Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers, which the men who were burned had offered, and they hammered them out as plating for the altar, as a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman who is not of the descendants of Aaron, should come near to burn incense before the Lord, so that he will not become like Korah and his company, just as the Lord had spoken to him through Moses. But on the next day, the, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You're the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, and they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. 
Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Then they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put in it fire from the altar and lay incense on it, and then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly. For behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But those who had died by the plague were 14,700 besides those who died on account of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting, for the plague had been checked. When I was a pastor in California, we experienced what I uh, have called, and I've experienced it many times, I called it a lateral. Uh, the woman who was serving as our social planner, social chairman, chairwoman, she lateraled the ministry to someone else without coming to the elders and talking to us about it. And so all of a sudden, we have a new social chairwoman. And we didn't want to offend the new woman by telling her that she was not going to be serving. And so we let her stay to see how things would go. Well, as Christmas approached, this new chairwoman came to me and said that she wanted to uh, put on a Christmas ball for our church. And I tried to explain to her that a Christmas ball just didn't fit with our church and who we were as a church, but she wouldn't take no for an answer. She was determined to put on a Christmas ball. Well, finally, one of our elders' wives met with her and tried unsuccessfully, as I had, to steer her in a different direction. And so at the conclusion of that meeting, this elder's wife, who was a very gentle woman, had to tell this lady that she would need to relinquish her position as our social chairwoman. I got home from church, the phone rang, this woman's husband was on the line, and he was irate with me that we had done this to his wife. I could hear her in the background just sobbing loudly, and uh, I, I tried to calm him down and explain, but the result was this couple stopped attending the church, and it's a small town where I was serving, and so I would run into them every once in a while at the post office or the, the market, and I tried to be friendly and greet them. And every time I did, they would deliberately turn away, not return my greeting, and uh, in that way, I ended the relationship with them. All of us who know the Lord should be serving him in some way, but I, I share that story to illustrate that it's easy to serve the Lord for the wrong reasons. I think there are many churches around America, including uh, some who are in full-time ministry, some pastors, I'm sure, who are serving the Lord, but they're serving him 
for the wrong reasons. They're serving for what they can get out of serving and not serving for the Lord and His glory. And I believe that's the situation we encounter in Numbers chapter 16, which we read. Korah, who was a Levite, organized this uh, disgruntled group of Reubenites, the sons of Reuben, and he got 250 leaders of the congregation together, and they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Their contention was that everyone in Israel were holy to the Lord, and therefore everyone should be able to serve as priests. And they accused Moses and Aaron themselves of going too far by lording it over the congregation, over Israel. And so they're challenging God's appointed leaders and demanding uh, equality for all. Sounds like a modern political slogan, doesn't it? Equality for all sounds uh, like a good cause. And so our chapter relates this rebellion and its aftermath where God vindicated Moses and Aaron in their leadership and brought this very frightening judgment on these rebels. And the lesson for us is that we serve God wrongly when we serve for ourselves, but rightly when we serve for him. In other words, Motive is everything in serving the Lord. Why do you do what you do when you serve the Lord is the issue. And often your true motives are uncovered when you feel like you've been slighted, you feel like you aren't high enough up in a position where you ought to be, uh, or perhaps you feel like you haven't been given the recognition that you deserve for all of your labors. And so you resent those who are in leadership. You feel like, if I were there, I could do a better job than they're doing. And I hope not, but maybe even you talk to a bunch of others and rally people together to speak out against the leaders. And so our text reveals four ways that we can serve wrongly, as exemplified by the rebels, and then the converse, four ways we can serve the Lord rightly as exemplified by Moses and Aaron. The first one is that we serve God wrongly when we desire power and prestige for ourselves, but rightly when we're content with the gifts that God has entrusted to us and we use them to serve him. Let's look at the negative side first, and that is that we serve God wrongly when we desire prestige uh, and power and prestige for ourselves. The rebels are identified in verse 1 as Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and On. Now, On is not mentioned again, so there's hope maybe he repented before the judgment was to fall. Korah was a son of Kohath. He was a Levite. He would have been by blood a cousin of Moses and, of course, of Aaron, Moses' brother. And the sons of Kohath had important duties in the temple, uh, tabernacle it was. They, they were responsible for setting it up, taking it down, carrying it to the next location as they journeyed in the wilderness, and then they had other duties as well. But the fact remains, the Kohathites, the, 
sons of Kohath, were a notch below the Aaronic priests. The other men that he rallied were of the tribe of Reuben. If you remember in Genesis, Reuben was the firstborn, but he had forfeited his preeminence as firstborn because he went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. And uh, the Levites and the tribe of Reuben in the arrangement of the camp of Israel, they both shared adjoining campsites to the south of the tabernacle, the way the thing was organized. So maybe that accounts for why he rallied the Reubenites. He may have appealed to them and said, hey, you're de- you guys are descendants of Jacob's firstborn. You deserve better in Israel than this guy Moses is giving you. And, you know, we've all been slighted by this guy. He thinks he's something more than he is. And we're going to get a party together and we're going to go confront him with this. Please join with us. Also joining Korah and the sons of Reuben, we read in verse 2, were 250 leaders of the congregation. It says they were chosen in the assembly, men of renown. And so we're not looking here at just a few grumblers. We're looking at a large, organized, full-scale rebellion against Moses and Aaron, made up of top leaders in Israel. Verse 3 states the pretext for their complaint. You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you, Moses and Aaron, exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now like all heretics, Korah and his fellow rebels emphasized one legitimate truth, to the exclusion of other truths that gave it balance. And every time there's heresy, you can count on it. They take something that's true, they magnify it, blow it out of proportion, uh, set aside or deny other truths in order to trump their cause. And it was certainly true what they claimed, that all Israel was holy to the Lord. Uh, The Lord had stated that. But it was also true A fact they're denying that the Lord had appointed Moses and Aaron to be uh, leaders. Moses as the leader over Israel, Aaron and his sons officiating at the tabernacle as priests. So Israel truly was to be a nation of priests. The Lord had said that in Exodus 19.6. But that did not deny that Moses and Aaron had a special place as leaders over Israel the entire congregation. And so their appeal for equality for everyone sounded great. It's a great political slogan, but it was off base because, as somebody has said, we're all equal, but some are more equal than others. Uh, Moses and Aaron had a position of leadership given by God over the congregation. So Korah and the rebels, I think, were disguising their real motive for wanting to serve, and that is they wanted more prestigious positions. Uh, They are claiming, oh, we just want to follow the word of the Lord. You yourself said we're all holy, we're all priests, and so on. But the real reason they're demanding preeminence was jealousy of Moses and Aaron 
and the desire for more power and prestige for themselves. And so in verses 8 through 11, Moses unmasks their hypocrisy and their deception here with the truth. He says, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle, uh, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near Korah with all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you. Are you seeking for the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord, not against Moses and Aaron. But as for Aaron, who's he that you grumble against him? So the application for us is this, constantly, constantly guard your motives if you're involved in serving the Lord. Why are you serving him? And it's really easy to cover pride and, and other wrong motives under some guise of, well, I just want the Lord's kingdom to increase. That's why I want to build a big church. You know, I'm just all for his glory. But of course, the real motive often can be that we're for our own glory. And certainly we all should try to do our best in serving the Lord, not be sloppy or false humility. But on the other hand, our real motive should never be to exalt self, but only to further the name of Christ. Uh, remember John the Baptist, he, his disciples were worried that Jesus was making a few more disciples than John was. And they brought that up to John, and John gave a classic answer that applies always in John 3.30. He said, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. There's a truly great man who could say that. So, looking at the flip side then, we serve God rightly when we're content with the gifts that he has entrusted to us, and we use those gifts to serve him. Uh, jumping ahead a couple of chapters in Numbers 18, the Lord makes it clear that he has entrusted to Aaron and his sons the ministry in the sanctuary. But then the Lord says the other uh, Levites are a gift to Aaron performing the service for the tent of meeting. But they were not allowed to enter the holy place. In fact, when they transported the objects of the holy place, uh, Aaron and his sons had to cover them first so that the um, non-Aaronic priests wouldn't see what they were. And then in verse 7 of Numbers 18, God tells Aaron, But you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything concerning the altar and inside the veil, and you are to perform the service. I'm giving you the priesthood as a bestowed service but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. That phrase bestowed service is literally a service of gift. And in the context, the outsider refers not only to the other Israelites, but even to the Levites who were not priests. And the point is this, that God has assigned gifts to all of his people who know him. And we're to view those positions as gifts. They were given to us, and we are to use them as good stewards to the Lord who entrusted them to us. And that's exactly the point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians. You remember 
the Corinthians were boasting in their gifts. And in 1 Corinthians 4-7, Paul confronts them and says, For who regards you as superior? And then he asks rhetorically, For what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? In other words, if you're gifted in some way, it's not because of you. God gave it to you as a gift. And you're to use it in serving the body. And later he makes that point that we are all members of the body of Christ, using the analogy of the human body. And all the parts have different but vital functions. In 1 Corinthians 12, where he develops that analogy at length, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit who gives those gifts. And there are varieties of ministries but the same Lord, referring to Jesus. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God, referring to the Father, who works all things in all persons. But to each one was given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So there we have it. We're all different. God has given us different ministries. Some have greater effects than others. And so we shouldn't be jealous of those who have bigger or more uh, public ministries, but we should rejoice if the gospel is being preached and the Lord's kingdom is being built, his saints are being built up. Hallelujah. That's great. Pray for them. And we shouldn't despise or neglect the gifts he's given us saying, well, I don't have a gift like that guy, so I'll just bury it. No, we are all to use what he's given us and serve him with thankful hearts. The second lesson that we come to here is that we serve God wrongly when we don't fear him, but rightly when we fear him above all. The negative first, we serve God wrongly when we don't fear him. And we read that these men, in verse 26, were wicked men, and they had spurned the Lord. And so their problems were that they didn't have hearts that loved and feared God above all, and Moses met their challenge that they deserved to be priests on a par with Aaron. First of all, by falling on his face, showing that he feared God. And then he challenges them in verses 5 through 7. He says, tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself. Even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers for yourself, Korah. In all your company, put fire in them, lay incense on them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You've gone far enough, you sons of Levi. So Moses falls on his face because he rightly fears God. And then he uh, issues this challenge. Now, if the rebels had had even a twinge of the fear of God... Uh, they should have responded by saying, uh-oh, you know, if we accept Moses' challenge, we're toast, literally. Because you remember, we didn't cover it, but back in Leviticus 10, I've told you about this, two of the sons of Aaron, who were legitimate priests, offered what's called strange fire, unauthorized offering, in the precincts there of the tabernacle, and fire came out from the Lord and devoured those two on the spot. 
Now these rebels who weren't even of priestly lineage should have connected the dots between, you know, what they're doing and uh, what God had done then and said, we repent right on the spot. We give up. We're, we're sorry. They didn't do that. And then they get a second warning. The very next day, when they all assemble there for the big showdown at OK Corral at the tent of the meeting, and they've all got their censers in hand, the glory of the Lord appears at the doorway of the tabernacle. Now, that's a big deal. Every time the glory of the Lord appears, everybody stops in their tracks and goes, whoa, something bigger than I is here. Uh, they should have fallen on their faces again right there and begged God for mercy, but they didn't. Remember how the Apostle Paul characterized the ungodly in Romans 3.18? I think about this often. He said, there's no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. Man, you see it all the time in our culture, don't you? Brazen, sin, pride. Hey, we're proud of our sin. No fear of God before their eyes. Now, even after the Lord opens the earth and swallows up Korah and Dathan and Abiram and their families and he sends fire and he <clears throat> consumes the 250 men who are offering this unauthorized incense, the end of this chapter is incredible. The rest of the congregation have the audacity to gather and accuse Moses and Aaron of being responsible for the deaths of these wicked men whom they call, in verse 41, the Lord's people. Now, you would think that after seeing God's power repeatedly as they had, these people, they may have been youth then, because this is uh, a few months or years later, but they had seen God's power with the plagues in Egypt. They had seen God's power parting the Red Sea. They had seen the thunder and the lightning and felt the earthquake when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. They saw the, the glory of the Lord there at the tabernacle. They should have respected God's power. But you know what this shows? When skeptics say, show me a miracle and I'll believe, they are mistaken. They won't believe. Because you can do a miracle in front of them and they'll still be skeptics. Remember the story in John 11? Jesus raises Lazarus, who was a stinking corpse, from the dead. Some believed, and others went away and complained to the Pharisees and said, we got to get this guy. And they actually tried to kill Lazarus, and then they did kill Jesus. Because the human heart is so hardened by sin that it takes more than seeing miracles. It takes the Spirit of God to break in and humble that person and show them their sin and show them the Savior. And then they are drawn to Jesus. And so, rather than fall on their faces in the fear of God, these rebels accuse God and his servants of cruelty. <clears throat> the flip side of that is we serve God rightly when we fear him above all. And we see that in the response of Moses and Aaron. They immediately fall on their faces when Korah uh, and the congregation accuse them. And they feared God because they know they knew that God is the righteous judge and they knew their own hearts that they were sinners. And if God is going to give justice, 
Moses and Aaron knew they would perish before the Lord, and you should know that too. Never ask God for justice. Always ask him for mercy. Mercy. I deserve his judgment. God, you're gracious. Would you be gracious to me through Jesus, your son? That's the way we should approach him. Now, this story shows us <clears throat> that the God we serve is not to be trifled with. And maybe you're thinking, well, I mean, Steve, this is the Old Testament. <laughs> After all, we're in the New Testament era. We're under grace. And my reply would be, uh, remember Ananias and Sapphira? Acts chapter 5. Uh, they were hypocritical, bringing a gift that they pretended was much larger than they really were able to give. And God struck them dead on the spot. And thankfully, that's, I think, a one-time occurrence. But the result of that in Acts 5.11 was great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Now, you've heard of it <laughs> because it's in the Word of God. And you've heard about Korah and Dathan and Abiram and all of these rebels and these stories are in the word of God that great fear would fall upon us as his people as well as we serve the Lord. Now let me tell you why fearing God is crucial as you serve him. If you don't fear God, you won't be in ministry very long before you're going to compromise the truth. Because people are going to come to you with things where they want you to compromise. You know, hey, don't be so hard-line. I mean, yeah, I know it says that in the Bible, but we're under grace. Let's loosen up a bit. And pretty soon, you'll be pleasing people rather than pleasing the Lord. And the, Paul, the Apostle Paul knew that. He, he had to confront in the Galatian book of Galatians, the Galatian heresy, some Judaizers had come into the flock and said, oh, we believe in Jesus, yeah, <laughs> We, we really are believers in Jesus, but you just need to add circumcision and keep the Jewish law in order to be saved. Small, small little picadillo there. And Paul said, no, they denied the gospel. And here's what he says in Galatians 1.10 after saying that they were accursed for saying that. He said, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? That's the issue. Or am I striving to please men? If I were still tr striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So you can't rightly serve God if you fear people and what they think of you more than you fear the Lord. First and foremost, and I keep this in front of me at all times, is I very soon will stand before the righteous judge. And oh, how I want to, I hope he speaks English, I want to see his lips say, well, I'm looking at his mouth. <laughs> I want to hear, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to hear, depart from me. I never knew you. So we serve God wrongly then. If we're in it for the power and the prestige and all of that for ourselves, rightly when we're content with the gifts and the calling he's given to us and we just use those to serve him. We serve him wrongly uh, when we don't fear him, but rightly when we fear him above all. There's a third principle here, and that is we serve God wrongly when we're not submissive to proper authority 
but rightly when we serve in submission to his properly appointed leaders. First, the negative again. We serve God wrongly <clears throat> when we're not submissive to proper authority. One telltale sign of people who are not in submission to proper authority is blame. They're blaming the leaders for problems that they, the people, have brought on themselves. And in verse 13, the rebels ask Moses, Is it not enough that you've brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you would also lord it over us? Did you catch that? Where had they come from? Slavery, making bricks under the hot Egyptian sun. And now they're calling it a land flowing with milk and honey. <laughs> it's incredible. And then they add in verse 14, Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Now, putting out the eyes of them, these men, they're exaggerating. They're basically saying, uh, Moses, you're wanting to blind everyone to your true intentions. You're just wanting to lord it over the, the people and uh, you, you aren't delivering on the goods. You haven't brought us into the land. So <clears throat> they're blaming Moses for not bringing them into the land. You remember a couple of chapters ago when we looked at the ten spies? And the congregation sided with the ten, not with the two. You know, the two came back, Joshua and Caleb said, hey, let's go get them. The ten said, oh, there's no way, these guys are giants, we're, we're done. And the congregation was at fault for not going into the land, but now they're blaming Moses for not delivering the goods. And then, in verse 41, the whole congregation blames Aaron and Moses for the deaths of the rebels. They didn't kill the rebels, God did, by a, a miracle. A display of his power. But the fact is, sinners like to blame everyone but themselves for the very problems that their own sin has brought on them. And at the root of this was they weren't submissive to Moses and Aaron. They chafed under their leadership. But you can't serve God rightly if you're rebelling against and trying to undermine the leaders God has appointed in a local church. The converse is then we serve God rightly when we serve in submission to his properly appointed leaders. Now, of course, Moses and Aaron and later the apostles were unique in their authority. Um, but they have left us the legacy of God's authoritative inspired word. The Bible. And in that word, Hebrews 13, 17, gives us this command. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And of course, the leaders are not out from under authority. The entire church is under the authority of the word of God, under the authority of the Lord himself, and one requirement for elders, therefore, is they should not be self-willed men. They should be men in under authority. So we serve God wrongly, then, if we're not submissive to godly leadership. And 
rightly when we do serve in submission. Then there's a final point, and that is we serve God wrongly when we don't care about God's people, but we serve God rightly when we care about his people, even when they treat us wrongly. Uh, first, the negative again, wrongly when we don't care about God's people. And it's very evident in this that even though these rebels profess, oh, we just want everyone to be equal, they really didn't care about others or they wouldn't have made this move of power for themselves. They wanted their own power and their own prestige. And, you know, today there are many preachers who are in it for themselves, and they don't care about people, and they're milking people for money, and using that money not to further the Lord's work, but to build themselves mansions and drive around in fancy cars and some of them even are appealing for money so they can fly their own private jet here and there and all this stuff. These men are talked about in the Bible and they are labeled as false teachers. Do not believe them. Do not send them money. Do not follow them. They are not men of God. They are men serving themselves. They don't care about people. The converse is we serve God rightly when we care about people, even when they treat us wrongly. And I will say this, if you get involved in ministry, people will at some point treat you wrongly. It happens. It happened with Moses. And there's never been a greater, more godly leader than Moses. I mean, the man, you know, was amazing. And all the time we've seen he's dealing with these grumbling people and he had many occasions he rightly could have said God I've had it just wipe them out kill them take them off and God even made that offer to Moses a couple of times as we've seen and Moses resisted the temptation and said no they're your people Lord they're your people and so with Korah's rebellion he and Aaron asked God to spare the congregation even though they realize God is going to judge Korah and his uh, cohorts. And then at the end of the chapter, when the entire congregation rebels, Moses tells Aaron, quick, take fire in your, in your censer and run among the people and make atonement for them so that the plague will stop. And you got to picture this. Aaron isn't a spring chicken. He's, he's in his mid-80s. And here's this 85-year-old grabbing this, you know, fire in the censer and he and for a Hebrew man to run, he had to gird up his loins, pull up his robe. It was undignified. And he's running to make atonement for the people. And even so, 14,700 of them died along with those who died on account of Korah. But the point is, Moses and Aaron cared for these people, even though the people had wronged them. Now, Aaron is a picture for us. He was the high priest, and he's standing between <clears throat> the righteous judge who could have annihilated the whole congregation and these sinners, these rebels, to make atonement for them. And that, I hope you see, is a picture of a greater priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and offered himself on the cross while we were yet enemies. 
Christ died for us. It's amazing. We were part of the rebel congregation. And here Jesus interposed his blood and said, Father, don't hold this sin against them. And all who trust in Jesus are under his blood and spared the judgment we deserve. And I hope that's true of you. And I want to add, everything I'm saying about serving the Lord is contingent on this, that you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you have not, you cannot possibly serve him for the right reasons. You'll be serving for some selfish reason, recognition or pride or something. You have to come, like all of us do, to the cross of Christ and say, oh God, I deserve your judgment, but I understand that Jesus interposed his blood for all who will believe in him. Father, give me faith. I believe in Jesus. Help my unbelief. Uh, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. However you pray it, the Bible promises whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Christ's example of loving us, even when we opposed him, should be our example because I guarantee you, if you get involved in serving, maybe you say, all right, I'll teach Sunday school. Great, great ministry. Somebody's going to criticize you. Somebody's going to hurt you, hurt your feelings, say something. It will happen. How do you respond? I hope it's with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to close by sharing with you a story. And some of you are going to say, I remember that story because this is an unforgettable story and I've shared it with you before, okay? And I have never forgotten it since I heard this man tell it at a pastor's conference. But it illustrates exactly what I'm trying to say here this morning. Bill Mills was the speaker. We were at a pastor's conference at Prescott Pines. And he shared about a time when he had been down in Central America speaking to a group of Wycliffe missionaries. And on the last evening he was there, he was eating dinner with the director and his wife. And she told him how years before they had been assigned to translate the Bible into one of the native tribal languages down there. And this was in the days before computers, and it often would take up to 20 years to translate the New Testament into that language. They had to, some of the people didn't even have a written language, so they had to figure out uh, a written language and then make equivalents and translate it and all of that. So they had devoted 20 years to this difficult process and during that time, of course, they were teaching the scriptures to the native people, and they saw a small church form and begin to grow. But as they got toward the end of the project, the drug dealers came in and began offering big bucks to these people to grow crops for their cocaine uh, business. And the people were being drawn away from the Lord and more and more into making money through selling coca leaves to the drug dealers. And so, as you know, when Wycliffe gets the translation done, they kind of have a celebration. And they invite everybody, you know, people from outside, but especially the tribe, and people come and get a New Testament. And they gave this big celebration party, and not one single person from the tribe came to the celebration. Imagine how you'd feel. And this woman was angry, and she was bitter. I mean, she, she said, you know, 
I gave 20 years of my life to these people to give them the word of God and they didn't even care. And then with regard to the ministry of the word that Bill had been giving them that week, she said this, God has opened my eyes to see the, all this from his perspective. I'm just beginning to realize now that we did it for him. That's the only thing that makes any sense in all of this. We did it for God. And Bill concludes, he says, that's the only thing that makes any sense in ministry. We do it for him. Amen. And so we serve God rightly. Well, we serve God wrongly when we serve for ourselves. We serve God rightly when we serve for him. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you've never opened your heart to the good news of Jesus Christ, he left the glory of heaven, took on the form of a servant, and died on the cross to pay the penalty that sinners deserve in judgment. He bore the wrath of God there for you if you will come to him as a guilty sinner and put your trust in him alone. To do that, you've got to lay aside your pride. You've got to lay aside your good works. And you have to admit, Lord, I have sinned against you. But I understand that you love me enough to offer yourself on the cross for me. And would you forgive my sin and give me eternal life as your free gift? And then, having received that gift, you serve out of a heart of love for him, thankfulness to him. Dear Father, I pray you would raise up many, many thankful, joyous servants in this body who will not be serving for the recognition they get or for the sense of esteem they get or anything else for them, but serving because you first loved us. And we'll give you all the glory for your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.